So the sermon this morning is entitled Glorifying God, Part 1. And if you have in your bulletins the uh, handout, it's going to be helpful as we are looking at some of the scriptures and preventing you from having to rifle through your Bible. So keep this handy. It'll be doing you some good later on. Um, It's said about Jesus and the life of Jesus that he came here to do two major things to glorify the Father, and to seek and save the lost. And as much as I like talking about seeking and saving the lost and doing mission and evangelism, uh, it would be negligent of me to ignore the first, glorifying the Father. Jonathan Edwards, a very famous revivalist and uh, theologian of the 1800s, he really cared about glorifying God, even though he's known for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And this is what he said. He said, we can glorify God in three major ways. And the first and second will seem very, no doubt to you, it will seem very simple to you. The first, he said, is that we can glorify God by our knowledge of God, what I would like to call our beliefs. As a Seventh-day Adventist church, we hold many distinct beliefs about Jesus that make him look beautiful, that reveal a true aspect of God's character. And Jonathan Edwards would say, look, your, your beliefs about God can glorify God. And then he goes on to say, but not only your beliefs, not your, only your orthodoxy, but your orthopraxy, meaning your right behavior, the things that you do can glorify God. So yes, you believe God is love, but do you show that love to other people? Uh, so we can glorify God by how we believe, and how we behave. But the third thing that he said that stopped me in my tracks, uh, that I hope will stop you in your tracks this morning, is that he said the third way we can glorify God is not just with how we believe, not just with how we behave, but how we feel about God. If we're happy with God, more specifically, if we're satisfied with the life that God has given us. You know, I'm not much of a cook, but uh, I try every once in a while, and uh, I'll try to put together my, my tofu butter chicken, and I'll, and I'll yeah, you can, you, can, you can mock me. It's, it's not very tasty, uh, but I try. I get all the right ingredients. I put it together. It looks good. I get it on the dish. I could even take a picture of it and put it on the internet, and people will think, man, Pastor Matt's a good cook. But if you take a bite out of my tofu butter chicken, you're going to experience what I've experienced, a disgust, (laughs) a dissatisfaction, you know, that it looks right and, and 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 it's got the right ingredients, but the taste of it is not satisfying. You know, sometimes we live our Christian faith that way. It's not just for the people in the world who don't know anything about Jesus and about the gospel and the good news of his soon return. But sometimes people of faith, we live our faith that way, that we're believing in all the right things and we're doing all the right things, but we're not satisfied with the life that God has given us. You know, it's very possible to believe the right things and to behave in all the right ways and still not have satisfaction. Do you know how I know? Because if there was anyone in the Bible who could say for certain that they believed the right things, it would be the people of Israel as they they just left Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments. 
If there's any group of people who said, we are behaving the right way, we are following God the best way possible, it would be the people of Israel as they followed the presence of God in that pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But open your Bibles with me to Numbers chapter 11, and we're going to see that even though they had the right behavior and they had the right beliefs, something was off. Please open your Bibles, Numbers chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version this morning. The Bible reads in Numbers chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. For the Lord, Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Verse 12. Then people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he called the name of that place Tibera, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Verse 4. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlics. But now our whole being is dried up, and there's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Not very happy. Look at verse 10. We'll skip down to verse 10. Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, and everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses also was displeased. We'll take a pause right there. You see, the children of Israel, they believed all the right things, they behaved all the right ways, but they were failing to glorify God because they were unsatisfied with where they were in life. And that dissatisfaction, that discontent, came out through their distaste for their food. They wanted meat when God was giving them manna. Now listen, uh, for our time here this morning, for us to understand the meat of our message, I need you to imagine with me that this pulpit is the sanctuary. And to help you put on your imagination, I brought my own personal Ark of the Covenant. I got it in Israel on the street for $40. And then I found out just right down the block that I could have gotten it for five. <laughs> so I have a little, you know, I have a little memory with this. But for our time this morning, I need you to recognize that this pulpit is the sanctuary and this uh, Ark of the Covenant is where the Shekinah glory would dwell. That's a fancy Bible word of saying, this is where the presence of God would rest. Now, we have to, understand, hear me now, the geographical location of the children of Israel and how they camped around the sanctuary to understand the meat of our message this morning. So to my left, your right, we can imagine this is the east. To the east of the sanctuary, into the entrance of the sanctuary, was the family of the Levites, Moses and Aaron. They lived the closest to the presence of God closest to the sanctuary. To the north of the family of the Levites were the Gershonites, just a different family of the tribe of Levites. They lived to the north, closest to the presence of God. To the west were the Merarites, also of the tribe of Levites. 
they live closest to the presence of God right next to the sanctuary. Don't let me lose you. To the, to the south were the Kohathites. These were the Levites who carried all the furniture all around the wilderness. Uh, they lived closest to the sanctuary, closest to the presence of God to the south. Now, further out from Moses and the Levites, further out from the presence of God, and I'll stand over here not to get in your way, uh, was the different tribes, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. They lived further out from the Levites, further out from the presence of God. Further out to the north from the Merorites, we had three more tribes. This is very important, follow me. Dan, Asher, and Naphtali, they lived further away from the presence of God. Further out to the west, uh, apart from the Gershonites, you had three more tribes. You had the tribes of uh, Benjamin, Manasseh, and Ephraim. They lived further out from the Levites, further out from the sanctuary, further away from the presence of God. And further out to the south, we had three more tribes. See how many of you are Bible scholars here. We have Gad, Simeon, and one other tribe we haven't mentioned. Anyone can say it? Reuben, we do have some Bible scholars here. They lived further out from the south, further out from the Kohathites, furthest away from the presence of God. Now, the passage this morning tells us that it was the mixed multitude who first began to complain, first began to be bitter and grumpy with being in the wilderness. And so my question for you this morning is this. We know where the Levites lived. We know where the rest of the tribes of Israel lived. But where did the mixed multitude live? Where did the people who had left Egypt but were not fully Israelites, where did they live? Did they live interspersed among the Levites and among the children of Israel? Well, the Bible gives a hint in verse 1 of Numbers chapter 11, and scholars will attest to this, that they lived far off. They lived the furthest distance from the presence of God. They, their commute to the sanctuary was far off, the furthest it could be. Why did I spend so much time talking about this? Because dissatisfaction, discontent, unhappiness, grumbling, and plain out dissatisfaction begin with those who are furthest away from the presence of God. Dissatisfaction, discontent, complaining, and bitterness, and all types of grumbling begin with those who are the furthest away from the presence of God. I want you to consider for a moment that maybe the reason you're going through such a difficult time feeling unsatisfied is not because your spouse needs to change or your children need to change or the school needs to change or the church needs to change or the political entities in the country need to change or the mask mandates need to change or something else needs to change. Maybe just for a moment, I want you to consider that the reason you're feeling dissatisfied is that you're just a little too far away from the presence of God. That you spend so much time talking about Jesus, but not enough time talking to Jesus. That you spend so much time working for Jesus, 
but you don't spend enough time with Jesus. You know, as a dad, I like to go out and walk around the lake with my kids and the ponds early in the morning whenever I can. And I used to live just a block away from a nice pond. And whenever you walk out next to a pond with little boys and even a grown-up boy like myself, there's one thing that little boys like to do around the water. You know what that is? That's right, like to throw rocks. And uh, anytime you get there in the morning and you look at the calm, peaceful pond or lake, it's really flat, it's beautiful. But you just take one rock, skip it or chuck it up in the air and let it splash into the water, and that one rock will cause a ripple effect and it will send the ripples all throughout the entire pond into the entire lake until the piece of that pond is gone. And in our passage this morning, that's exactly what happens. Those on the outskirts of the camp of Israel begin to complain, and it ripple, ripple effects to the entire congregation of Israel as they camped in the wilderness. So much so, guys, that the Bible says that every person is sitting outside of their tent weeping, saying, oh, we just wish we could go back to Egypt where we could eat fish eyes. Like they've, they've lost it. And that's the thing about our dissatisfaction and our complaining and our bitterness and things like that. It doesn't just start and end with us. It ripple effects. And before we know it, if we're not careful, our dissatisfaction, our discontent can shake up our whole community, our whole county, and even our whole country. You might be here thinking about your life, wondering, yeah, pastor, sounds good. Get close to Jesus. I'll be satisfied. But you don't know the problems that I'm facing in my life. You don't know the health challenges that I have. You don't know the financial struggles that I'm dealing with. You don't know the boss that I have to deal with. Pastor, if my circumstance, if my situation were to change, then I would be satisfied. That's your uh, thought. Let me just challenge that with you real quick with some teachings in the great controversy uh, you've probably heard before. Because the Bible says that in a perfect place called heaven, that there was war. In Revelation 12, verse 7, take your handouts and read them with me, for the Bible says, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Verse nine, so that great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. If you ever study the Bible with people who uh, haven't heard this verse before, they'll say, the devil is fighting Jesus in heaven? Who let the devil in? How did he get in there? <laughs> I like that. See, the Bible paints this picture that there was a fallen angel who became the devil, uh, but the Bible gives us the psychology, and this is what I want us to pay attention to this morning, the psychology of sin for what made a perfect being discontent in a perfect place called heaven. You've read these passages before, but I want to point out something that maybe you've missed. Look in Isaiah 14, verse 12, speaking about this fallen angel, speaking about this devil-like creature, the Bible says, how you are fallen from heaven, 
O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Pay attention to this. I will also sit on the mountain of the congregation. On the farthest side of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high God. In a perfect paradise called heaven, the devil became discontent with his position. The Bible says that he wanted to be on the mountain of God. But when you look at Ezekiel, God's perspective of this, if you turn your papers over, please do. God's perspective of this is very interesting. Because he says about this fallen angel, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. Let me break it down for you. The devil, fallen angel, he wanted to be on the mountain. But in God's perspective, the devil was already on the mountain. The fallen angel wanted to be up on the mountain, but Jesus, God said, you're already there. And that's the crazy thing about, about dissatisfaction. It doesn't have to make sense. And with the same psychology of sin, this fallen angel comes to earth and with the same mindset, he tricks our fathers and mothers, Adam and Eve. Look at the Bible, Genesis 3, verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. But wait, weren't they already like God? If you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, here's the thing. The devil wanted to be on the mountain, but he was already on the mountain. Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit. They wanted to be like God, but they were already as much like God as they could be. And that's the psychology of sin. That's why it's a mystery of iniquity because it really doesn't make any sense because you begin, listen, hear me now, you begin to want things that God has already given you. And you begin to want things as if you don't already have them. And this is what happens in heaven. And this is what happened to earth. And this is what happens to us as we live our day-to-day -day lives. We have this psychology of sin that not only do we want things that we already have, but hear me now, we begin to feel like we are oppressed in paradise. That God's blessings are actually curses. I mean, think of just our culture that we live in today, in North America. We live at a time that we have access to the greatest wealth, to the greatest privilege, to the greatest resources the world has ever known. And if you go about, man, people are miserable. People are unhappy. People are discontent and dissatisfied. And you know this as soon as you go to a mission field. And you see people who literally live on dirt floors and they're happier than everyone else who lives here. I want you to consider for a moment that maybe the reason you're so dissatisfied is not because you don't have that promotion. It's not because, you know, you didn't get that car that you wanted. But maybe, just for a moment, 
you've dwelt just a little too far away from the presence of God. You know, sometimes we think we need a change in our situation, but the Bible continually calls for not a change in our situation, but a change of our mind. In fact, all throughout the New Testament, Jesus and John the Baptist and his disciples, they say this cool Bible word that you hear often. They say, repent, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. You're like, what does that mean? Well, uh, in the Greek, repent is actually just two words uh, smushed together. One of the words is meta. Facebook just changed its company name to meta. One word is meta, meaning change. And the other word is nueo, meaning mind. You smush those words together in the Greek, it's repentance is a change of mind. What we need is not a new situation, a change in our situation. What we need is a change of mind. But it's easier said than done. That's why I like what Ellen White says. Whenever you're confused, sometimes she gives you some steps that will make Christian life a lot easier. In Steps to Christ, she says, no, we can no more repent without the spirit of Christ to awaken the conscience than we can be pardoned without Christ. What is she saying? She's saying, as much as the gift of salvation is given freely to you, that is how repentance, this change of mind, is given to you. That when you come to Jesus, you recognize there's something within you that you cannot do on your own. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit we're not conformed to this world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. God wants us not to have a change in our situation. Where you are is where God wants you to be. Who you're with is where God wants you to be with. What you're doing, God wants you to be doing. You don't need a change in your situation. You need a change of mind. You know, uh, I've worked with young people, and one of the joys of working with young people over the last decade is getting to see them grow up so they're just adults. And uh, now I work or am colleagues with people who are fellow pastors, doctors, some of them dentists, engineers, teachers, the whole gamut of professions and, and the like. And, you know, once I'm your pastor, I'll tell you this, because uh, I'm your pastor here at Spencerville. Once I'm your pastor, I'm always your pastor. You need me no matter if I move back to Canada or I end up in Mexico, who knows? I'm always your pastor. You need a reference, you call on me. You want to talk about something, you call on me. I'm there for you. Uh, and every once in a while, you know, students in the past, they'll reach out and they'll tell me about their life. And I kid you not, 99% of the time, even though their lives are great, they'll tell me something that they're complaining about. Uh, you know, the conference and the church, they're just not letting me push my vision forward, you know? My boss at work is just not, you know, giving me an easy time. Uh, always something going on. But one time, uh, one girl by the name of Olivia changed my whole perspective. Uh, I met her at the student center. She was one of my first youth, uh, youth in my youth group. And at the student center, she was there, and she told me something that I had never heard before. She said, Pastor... Uh, I have this strange neurological uh, illness called ME, myalgic encephalitis, something close to that. Um, 
It's a neurological condition that I'm so fatigued that I can't really do anything. And, and when I do, I have to save up energy for four months. But whenever I exert myself, my whole body goes into pain. And when I heard her say that, I was like, man, that is the, like, that's a very difficult circumstance. And I was waiting for her to kind of just vent and tell me the struggles that she's going through. But this is what stopped me in my tracks because she said, you know, Pastor Matt, it's strange. Because even though I'm going through this right now, I have a peace in God that I've never had before. You know, even though my friends are graduating and I'm stuck here at home, I have a joy with Jesus that I've never experienced before. That even though life is going on without me, I have satisfaction in God and really it doesn't make any sense. And I look at Olivia and I say, out of anyone in the world who had the right to complain about their life, it would be her. It would be her. But she has realized and experienced in her life what John Piper says best in words, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Friends, I believe Jesus is coming soon. I believe he is going to make a movement that is rapid and the end of time is coming. And we need to be able to share that love of Jesus with the world before it ends. And here's the thing, you might be saying all the right things and you might be doing all the right things, but if you're not happy with Jesus, if you're not satisfied with the life he's given you, then no one else is gonna care whatever it is that you're talking about. People wanna see a Christian who is happy, who loves Jesus, who has satisfaction even when life isn't going the way you want. And so my prayer for you today and this week, it's not that your situation would change, but that you would have this change of mind that is a gift of the Holy Spirit, that you would, as the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and he would give you the desires of your heart. That's my prayer for you, that we would draw near to Jesus and that everything would change in here, even if everything out here doesn't budge. God bless you.